Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. We haven't heard much about violence between fighters in eastern Ukraine and Russian-backed separatists lately. A ceasefire agreed upon last fall is one reason, but perhaps the best explanation is Russia has turned its military attention to the civil war in Syria. However, there have been dozens of violations of the ceasefire every day, and there seem to be they seem to be increasing in the last month or so. So what does it mean for the future of Ukraine, and what implication could there be for the West? Joining us today is Stephen Pfeiffer, former ambassador to Ukraine and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center on the United States and Europe, as well as the director of Brookings Arms Control Initiative. Ambassador Pfeiffer, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Dr. Carl Qualls, professor of history at Dickinson College. Dr. Qualls, welcome back to the show. Good to be back with you, Scott. Let me to our listeners that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. One of the reasons that Ambassador Pfeiffer is with us is he will be speaking at the Selector Auditorium on the Dickinson College campus tomorrow night at 7. All right, uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer, let's start with where we are right now in Ukraine. What is the situation as we speak? Well, you have... Um I think, a continuing frozen conflict in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass, where the ceasefire that was agreed and supposed to kick in a year ago, it began to take better hold in September, but you still have continuing incidents of firing across the line of contact. Um, And I think, of course, Russia, its attention is partially diverted in Syria. But I've seen the Russian involvement in, in the Donbass as really designed to distract and destabilize the government in Kiev to put pressure on that government. And the Russians may have ratcheted down the pressure in Donbass the last several months because, in fact, the politics in Kiev have become quite complicated. All right. Well, let's talk about we're going to talk about all those things today. But let's start with uh, where this is actually occurring, because I want to give uh, everyone out there uh, an opportunity to to picture what is going on. Donbass, you know, we heard so much about uh, Russia annexing Crimea. Crimea. Uh, Where is Donbass? It's in the eastern part of the country, but uh, describe it in relationship to Crimea. Yeah. Well, Crimea, of course, is the peninsula that juts down into the Black Sea. And Crimea was unique in that it was the one part of Ukraine where ethnic Russians constituted the majority of the population. Donbass is, is in the far eastern part of Ukraine. It, it probably runs to maybe 5 to 7% of the total land area of Ukraine. Uh, and really the fighting that we've seen going on since April of um, 2014 has really been restricted there. You go 50 miles east of the line of contact and things are perfectly normal. That's that's hard for a lot of people to uh, to to picture. Let's kind of go back to provide a little bit of uh, context here. Who are the combatants? Well, the combatants, the the conflict in uh, in the Donbas region began really in early April of 2014, when you had separatists uh, taking some government buildings. Um, but it became fairly clear that the separatists had a lot of support in terms of money leadership weapons coming from Russia, uh, including heavy weapons. I mean, you begin to see, at first the separatists said, well, we get our heavy weapons, we get our tanks and our armored personnel carriers, we capture them from the Ukrainian army. But then you begin to see tanks in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass on the separatist side that were never in the Ukrainian inventory that had to come from Russia. And some of those weapons included, tragically, the Bukha surface-air missile that shot down the Malaysian airliner in July of 2014. 
Now, the Russians, uh, you know, there is overwhelming evidence that there are Russian troops, maybe not in uniform, but uh, that uh, members of the Russian military fighting in Ukraine, although Vladimir Putin and Russia to this day, I assume, uh, deny that that's the case. The Russians continue to deny that they have active duty military personnel in eastern Ukraine at the moment. But I guess I would remind your listeners that if you went back to March 3 or March 4 of 2014, after you'd seen the appearance of what Ukrainians called little green men, these were these guys in Russian combat fatigues but without identifying insignia, when they showed up and occupied Crimea, Putin was asked at a press conference, are those Russian soldiers? And he said, no, they're not. Five weeks later, he admitted, yes, they were Russian soldiers. Um, you know, they and they, so that I think undermines the credibility of what the Russians are saying about their presence in eastern Ukraine. And you know, if you go back and you look in 2014 and 2015, a lot of the leaders of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and uh, Luhansk People's Republic were in fact Russians. And you know, one of the uh, interesting parts of this. Uh, and I don't know, it doesn't get reported a whole lot here in this country, is that there are many of these combatants who go back to Russia, and because it's not officially sanctioned, they can, like, get no military benefits and uh, are forgotten. I mean, they're complaining all the time about how Russia, uh, how Moscow has forgotten them. But that's that's another story. Considering that Russia annexed Crimea, it appears that Russia has the upper hand. Is there a winner? Is there someone leading in this in this uh, war right now? Well, I, I mean, I, I think the, the the military conflict in the Donbass at this point ha- is it something of a stalemate. The Ukrainian military understands they cannot take back the Donbass militarily. Uh, I, a year ago, I had a chance to go out to uh, Kramatorsk, which is the field headquarters in Donetsk for the Ukrainian army. And they really understand they can't beat the Russian army. I think on the Russian side, there's a recognition that a major offensive would uh, lead to significant Russian casualties, which the Russians wish to avoid. So while there's been some back and forth firing across the line of contact, both sides at this point in time seem to have an interest in avoiding a major uh, resumption of hostilities on par with what you saw, say, in August of 2014, or February of 2015. Dr. Qualls, one of your specialties uh, is the history of this region. Uh, Russia and Ukraine have a long history together. And, you know, I, I think that just one of the things that we do in this country is we think of history as something that happened 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, but in this part of the world and many other parts of the world, the history that goes back hundreds of years can contribute to something that's happening today. Are there events in history, relationship between Russia and uh, Ukraine that maybe contributed to what we are seeing today? Uh, there's a lot of them, Scott. Um, I think one of the things that we oftentimes forget here is the things that brought these countries together. They share much of the same history, and so it's rather odd um, that we see them uh, fighting tooth and nail today. You know, they, they trace back their histories over a thousand years ago. Both countries see their founding in and around the city of Kiev. They see their, their state religions founded uh, in 988, you know, again, over a thousand years ago, in and around the city of Kiev. Uh, linguistically, they're very, very similar peoples. Now, this doesn't mean they've always gotten along. Um, there have been several points in history uh, you know, 300 years ago, uh, roughly, 
there was a, a treaty that was supposed to be bringing these two countries together, and Ukrainians and Russians debate on what that actually means. I think more significantly is uh, the 20th century, as the Soviet Union started coming together and, and the Civil War that emerged just after the revolution in, in 1918. The Civil War brought a bunch of um, uh, Ukrainian uh, intellectuals, uh, nationalists together to try to create a, a sovereign Ukraine out of what used to be the Russian Tsarist Empire. And then again in World War II, we see a lot of uh, Ukrainians um, who are ambivalent. They don't know which is worse, a Stalin or Hitler, and they're trying to find their way through and try to, again, carve out an independent Ukrainian nation. And so there have been these points of contention, and w when you mentioned Crimea, I think this is a big one as well. When it was given by then the Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev from the Russian Republic to the Ukrainian Republic, Ukrainians and Russians see that deal difference, di differently. Russians see that as a gift, it was illegal, et cetera, et cetera, while Ukrainians will oftentimes see that as the transfer of sovereign territory to what is now independent Ukraine, and therefore it should be, independent, it should be part of Ukraine today rather than part of Russia since its uh, seizure in 2014. I'll ask both, both of you this question. I'll start with you, Dr. Qualls. Uh, when Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, was there ever a time when there was allegiance to Moscow? Oh, there's a great deal of allegiance. Uh, as I said, there's, there's so much connection between the, the Russian and Ukrainian peoples. Um, you know, you had um, tens, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians fighting uh, for Moscow, for the Soviet Union in the Second World War. You had some fighting against it. Um, you had Ukrainian workers uh, traveling all over the Soviet Union to work. You had Russians coming into Ukraine, particularly into the Donbass region that the ambassador was talking about. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of allegiance for m many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Ukrainians for the Soviet project. Um, so this, this is not as if the, the, this border that we're talking about in eastern Ukraine has been this, this dividing, hard dividing line between these two peoples. These, fan, these, these peoples intermarry. Um, you know, there's, there's so many connections there that it's, it's, it's almost mind-boggling to see the amount of divisiveness that, that we have uh, in much of the Ukrainian and Russian populations today. Mm -hmm. uh, ambassador Pfeiffer, do you, did you see that when you were ambassador? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think if you went back 20 years ago and told average Russians and average Ukrainians that you would have had this kind of conflict in the Donbass that's killed nearly 10,000 people, you know, they would have reacted with disbelief. Uh, but, but I think there has been a change in the last couple of years. Uh, it's, since I've gone back and several times since the Maidan Revolution in February of 2014, there really is, and I think it's almost nationwide now, this very strong sense of Ukrainian national identity. When I was there at the end of the 1990s, you saw that national identity predominantly in the west and central Ukraine. In eastern Ukraine, people saw themselves as Ukrainians, but the sense of national identity wasn't as deep. Uh, I think that's changed a lot. Uh, and as one uh, of my Ukrainian colleagues told me, you know, he said, centuries of Ukrainian nationalists have not been able to achieve what Vladimir Putin did in two years, which was build a sense of strong national identity. And it now has, I think, a fairly strong anti-Russian component. As, as one Absolutely. Ukrainian explained to me, he said, look, it's not just about Putin. He says there's really anger in the population here 
because they say the Russian people I'll let Putin do this to us. Mm. Yeah, and it will take it will take a long time to get past that, unfortunately. Scott, if I may, I, I completely agree that the changes we've seen in the last two years is remarkable. Where we might have, you know, since the, the fall of the Soviet Union, we would have had some, what you might call kind of hardcore Ukrainian nationalists um, talking about an independent Ukraine vis-a-vis Russia. Mm-hmm. But now that that sentiment is so much deeper and so much broader in the, in the population at large that um, Putin, it, you know, rather than Ukraine being moving in a, in a pro-Western form, and that being part of Ukraine's na- new identity. It, it is this, this anti-Putin, and he, I think even more insidious, the anti-Russian part of the new Ukrainian identity um, that, has, that has galvanized. So I think there has been a tremendous sea change in the last two years. Ambassador Pfeiffer, you were ambassador, as you mentioned, in the late 90s when Ukraine was still newly independent from the Soviet Union. Uh, like other republics that left, Ukraine had a very difficult time economically. What was Ukraine like at that time when you were ambassador? Well, at the end of the 90s, I mean, the Ukrainian economy was still uh, in difficult straits. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991, and Ukraine experienced probably seven to eight years of economic contraction. You only begin to see some growth really around 1999 or 2000. And, and, and part of that was simply moving away from the command economy institutions uh, that vanished with the Soviet Union and the other problem was was somewhat self-inflicted is that the Ukrainians were slow to adopt the sorts of reforms that would get the economy on a stronger course. Uh, but it was interesting. I mean, in terms of what we're seeing now in Donbass, again, I, I traveled quite frequently to places like Kharkiv, Donetsk, um, Zaporizhia, Dnipropetrovsk in eastern Ukraine. And you never would have, from the conversations I had then, you never would have predicted the kind of conflict you see in Donbass today. And I, I, I believe, in part on the basis of those conversations I had back 15 years ago in eastern Ukraine, that had they been left to their own, you would not have seen this kind of conflict in eastern Ukraine, and you certainly would not have seen over 9,000 people killed. I think it really was the Russian intervention, the prompting, the urging, the providing weapons, funding, and leadership uh, that have led to this real or nasty conflict, which... I see more in terms of a Russia-Ukraine conflict rather than a civil war. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're discussing Ukraine's future and implications for the West, including the United States, with Stephen Pfeiffer, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution Center on the United States and Europe, as well as the director of Brookings Arms Control Initiative, and Dr. Carl Qualls, professor of history at Dickinson College. Ambassador Pfeiffer will speak at the Schlechter Auditorium on the Dickinson College campus tomorrow night at 7. The title of the lecture is The Ukraine-Russia Crisis and U.S. Policy. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. We have an email here that we're going to get to in just a few minutes because it involves history and U.S. role in uh, what we could be seeing down the road. Uh, but, uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer, let me start with uh, you know what you witnessed over the years. There has been a lot of government corruption in Ukraine, and that uh, supposedly contributed to where we are now. In what way? 
No, I, unfortunately, I think corruption has been endemic in Ukraine for, pretty much from the beginning. And a lot of this was because the Soviet system itself was corrupt. So a lot of those bad habits carried over after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. The unfortunate thing is that the inability of the Ukrainians to deal with corruption, I think, has actually weakened the state. Uh, and uh, this may be one of the issues that now is eroding public confidence in President Poroshenko and Prime Minister Yatsenyuk, who, who came to office in 2014. Uh, again, when I was there in the fall, uh, there was really this unhappiness on the part of Ukrainians that they hadn't seen a more robust effort to come to terms with corruption. There have been some things. I mean, they've appointed some some, some new people. Uh, they've set up new police forces in Kiev and other major cities. Um, but again, there's this sense that people who are clearly corrupt are not being brought to account, account as quickly as they should be. One of the real conflicts was that uh, Ukraine had been flirting with the idea of joining the European Union, and uh, Putin, President Putin, wanted a Eurasian Union. Is that part of what this is about? Oh, that, I, that, that certainly is a part of it. Um, Ukraine uh, in 2013 was on the verge of signing an association agreement with the European Union, which, among other things, included a deep and comprehensive free trade area that would have opened up much of Europe's market to Ukrainian goods. Uh, Russia very clearly wanted Ukraine instead to get involved in the Russian-led Eurasian Economic Union. But the choice for Ukraine was, I think, fairly obvious. If you're looking at the European Union, you're looking at a combined economy of somewhere between 16 and $18 trillion a year in gross domestic product. If you were looking at the Eurasian Economic Union, you're looking at something maybe $2 trillion a year. So the economic advantages were very much with the European Union. Um, the Russians didn't like that, and I believe a good portion of the Russian policy towards Ukraine in the last several years has been designed to frustrate uh, Ukraine's effort to draw closer to the European Union. But also domestic political factors in Russia play a, play a big part of the, uh, the Russian motivation. There was talk at the time that uh, if... Ukraine aligned itself with uh, the European Union, that there was a possibility of Ukraine uh, joining NATO, NATO troops in Ukraine, and that Putin said, ah, that, that, that's not going to happen. Uh, is that uh, is something that could happen? I, I don't think so. I mean, if you go back, and let's go back to, say, 2010, you know, from 2009 to 2010 on, there really was no enthusiasm within NATO for putting Ukraine on a membership track. And of course, in 2010, when Viktor Yanukovych became president, he said, you know, we're not interested in joining NATO. We don't even want, we don't want a membership action plan. Uh, so NATO-Ukraine relations would have been described as cooperative. But from that point on, 2010, no one in NATO was pushing hard to bring Ukraine into the alliance. Now, I think that's the reality. Uh, unfortunately, I think one of the problems that we have is Vladimir Putin and the security elite have this perception that NATO has relentlessly expanded towards Russian borders, tried to bring force to Russia's borders, tried to hem in Russia. Uh, and I think that their narrative is demonstrably flawed and that, that it can be demonstrated at several points. Uh, but I'm not sure we can persuade Mr. Putin. And so to some extent, I think he sees this almost as a defensive pushback.
Mm. And I'm going to ask both of you this question. And it's 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 one of those things that, you know, we've touched on it a few here, but it's a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on this and tried to psychoanalyze uh, Vladimir Putin. But, uh, Ambassador, what do you think Putin's objective was and is? Yeah, well, I would divide the objectives down to two. First of all, uh, the Russians, I think, were caught off guard by how quickly Yanukovych fled the country at the end of February 2014. Um, and they then activated a plan that they'd had sitting in the file cabinet for a number of years to seize Crimea. And because of the historical uh, connection to Crimea, Crimea, as I said, was the one part of Ukraine where ethnic Russians constitute the majority, about 60% of the population. Sevastopol, the main city of Crimea, the, the main harbor, was actually founded by the Russians to over 200 years ago to be the home port for the Russian Black Sea Fleet. So Russia wanted Crimea. You haven't seen the Russians make any effort to move to annex or somehow take in the Donbass. And I think that reflects a very different goal, which is to use the conflict in the Donbass to put pressure on the government in Kiev <clears throat> to distract, to destabilize it, to make it harder for that government in Kiev to get on with the needed economic reforms they have to pursue, but also to make it more difficult for them to move forward with the association agreement uh, to draw closer to the European Union. Dr. Qualls, anything you'd like to add to that? No, I think that's absolutely correct. Um, I lived in Sevastopol on and off for 10 years, including while um, Ambassador Pfeiffer was, was in office. And that the feeling in Crimea is very different from the other places in Ukraine that I've been. Um, the, the distinction, I think, um, that we can make is um, that, you know, Crimea is – I, I can't see any scenario in which Crimea goes back to Ukraine. Um, I think the ambassador mentioned uh, quite uh, succinctly that this has been a long-term plan of Russia, and they found the moment when it could happen. The destabilization is exactly what Putin has been doing since he's been office. We see we saw this in Georgia in 2008. Um, you start a conflict and then you freeze it. This allows you then to manipulate that state as best you can without incurring the additional costs. Right, seizing Crimea is is easy and and not particularly cheap. Seizing and controlling Donbass would be so incredibly expensive at a point that the, the Russian economy was already on a downslide before the sanctions came, came on. So Putin is, is really realistic about what his, his opportunities are. He saw a cheap and easy way to get Crimea, and he saw Donbass as one that he could unsettle and then therefore weaken and, and hopefully uh, control the outcomes of uh, Ukraine's relationship with the EU. All right, let's talk about the implications for the West, including the United States. Ambassador, what implications are we looking at? Well, I, I think that there are a set of implications with regards to Ukraine, and there's a set of implications that, that go much wider. I mean, with regards to Ukraine, it's been an American policy interest to see Ukraine develop as a stable, democratic uh, state with a growing economy. Um, and I still think that kind of Ukraine makes a lot of sense in terms of the kind of Europe we in America would like to see. Uh, it characterizes Europe increasingly whole and free. Uh, and that's going to put us at odds with what we see the current Russian approach. But, but what I worry about is that what you're seeing in Ukraine basically reflects also broader Russian dissatisfaction, or I should say dissatisfaction on the part of Mr. Putin and the Kremlin with the European security order that evolved after the end of the Cold War. Uh, and you've seen now for the first time uh, this use of military force to change borders, 
which violates the cardinal rule of European security going back to the 1975 Helsinki Final Act. And it does raise the question, you know, would the Russians be prepared to use force elsewhere? Now, I happen to think it's a very, very small probability, for example, that you might see Russian use of force against a Baltic state. But if we've been having this conversation four years ago, I would have said zero probability. Uh, and, and so uh, there is some discussion. I, I was actually in Brussels last Thursday and Friday and talked to some U.S. officials and some officials at NATO, and, and they're basically saying, you know, how do we deal with a Russia that now appears to present a security threat of a kind that we hadn't seen for the first 20 years after the end of the Cold War? There, you know, there have been criticisms of the Obama administration that the Obama administration is not doing enough. Ambassador, your thoughts on that? Um, I think the Obama administration could do more. I, 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 first, I give them high marks in terms of political support. I mean, Vice President Biden, I think, has been there four times in the last year and a half. So that kind of high-level attention, I think, is, is good. But, but I guess I'd like to see the administration do more in two ways. One would be economic support. And Ukraine has a program with the International Monetary Fund. It's received some assistance from the United States and the European Union that's kept it back from tumbling over the cliff into financial collapse. But they're on the edge. And uh, Larry Summers, the former Secretary of Treasury, has said that uh, Ukraine could use an additional 5 to $10 billion in credits and grants to basically give them a margin of comfort. I'd like to see the West do that. Uh, the United States and the European Union is working together. But linking that specifically to Ukraine doing very specific things in terms of accelerating reform. So it wouldn't be free money. It would become with links that would encourage the Ukrainian government to move faster in some of the economic reforms they have to do. And Scott, the thing I, is, think, is, I think is, there's a – oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, the third point would just be – the third area would be military assistance. And, and I believe the U.S. should be doing more in the area of military assistance. Again, not with the goal of giving the Ukrainians the ability to beat the Russian army. They're not going to be able to do that. But what we want to do is give the Ukrainians a better ability to defend themselves, to raise the cost to the Russians of further aggression, and basically to take away cheap and easy military options from the Russians so that they have to look more towards a political settlement. Dr. Qualls? Yes, Scott, I think, I think the question about um, what, what's in this for the West is interesting because the West is not of one mind. The United States has its interest, and the EU has its interest, and even within the EU, we begin to see uh, a breakdown, and, and Putin is exploiting this on what individual member nation states uh, would like. Um, the United States doesn't have any economic ties with Russia, none, none that, are, that are really meaningful. But the EU was intimately tied with Russia, so the continuation of sanctions um, bites and, and hurts harder in EU member states than it does in the United States. Uh, the idea that the ambassador floated of greater economic aid is, is crucial, but the IMF is now debating on whether they release the, uh, the latest tranche of money because the reforms are going uh, much more slowly than had been an anticipated. Um, just uh, two days ago, I think, it was a member of Angela Merkel's party started talking about a Marshall, pl Marshall, um, Marshall Plan for Ukraine. That's the kind of stuff that is going to allow Ukraine to survive this very uh, unsettled, chaotic period, when its own internal politics is chaotic as well. So fixing the long-term corruption is one problem that Ukraine has to, f to figure out on its own, but Western countries have to re also remain united in, in providing the support, uh, both for, mostly financial, 
but also militarily in things like uh, anti-tank weapons, when we know that there's some 80-odd um, Russian tanks uh, near the uh, the control line in eastern Ukraine. Dr. Qualls, we have an email that's right up your alley, and I'm going to make this the, the kind of our final question here. In the later years of Ivan IV's reign, the southern borders of Boscovy were disturbed by Crimean Tatars. The Russians eventually beat back the invaders. This was July 1572, more than 200 years before the Declaration of Independence. And he, the point that uh, Thomas is making here, he says, we need to keep our military and views out of this conflict that is century older than our country. Your thoughts? Well, the the Skolf conflict and, and this is, uh, they're quite different, <laughs> as are the military capabilities. Um, you know, I think, I think President Obama has been quite clear that, um, you know, we're not going to have troops in there fighting. We do have troops in there training in Ukraine. Uh, NATO has a place, again, in, in advising um, and in training, but it's Ukraine is not a NATO state. And, you know, I think as the ambassador quite rightly noted, an invasion of a Baltic state is completely different. And that's why we haven't seen it thus far. Putin knows that he, if he invades Estonia, for example, that triggers Article 5 of the NATO convention. And then we're all we're all in. He cannot fight NATO in a conventional war. And he knows that. But we don't have the same interests in Ukraine, and he also knows that. And so continuing to, to sneak arms and people across the eastern border into Ukraine, continue to destabilize it militarily, this is exactly what he wants. It's really um, quite low stakes for him, unfortunately. And so he's going to continue to exploit it as long as possible and hope that the, the treaty that they signed, the Minsk Accords, will um, bring these two um, territories in Donbass into the Ukrainian government proper, and then that'll be an even greater destabilization of Ukraine's politics. Stephen Pfeiffer is former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and Dr. Carl Qualls is professor of history at Dickinson College. Ambassador Pfeiffer will speak at the Schlechter Auditorium on the Dickinson College campus tomorrow night at 7. The title of the lecture is The Ukraine-Russia Crisis and U.S. Policy. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvanians love the outdoors, and some of our favorite activities outdoors include hiking, running, or biking on nature trails. History is one of our favorite topics as well, and that's why a 250-mile trail under development would be of great interest. The Grand History Trail would connect York and Gettysburg with Frederick, Baltimore, and Annapolis in Maryland, Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, and Washington, D.C., obviously I'm not going chronologically there uh, because that would be a long way around. But uh, that's those are some of the places that uh, connect in the trail. A few of these trails already exist, but not the complete trail. And that's what we're here to discuss today. Joining us is Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Cindy Dunn. Secretary Dunn, welcome to the program. Good morning. Happy to be here. Also joining us is Don Gognat, an educator. Uh, an author and traveler who is one of the biggest advocates for the Grand History Trail, and I think you'll hear that, hear that passion come through for Don in just a few minutes. Mr. Gagnon, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Let me tell you again that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. This is exciting. Uh, tell me, uh, first of all, uh, in broad terms, about the Grand History Trail, Don. Yes, I happen to be a member of the York County um, Rail Trail Authority uh, for a number of years, 
and we were looking at the trail that we built, the uh, York County Heritage Rail Trail, and we saw it connected to the Tory Brown Trail in uh, in Maryland. We had a study going to Gettysburg. I know about the CNO Canal and the trail from Annapolis to Baltimore, and we looked at that on paper, and it almost formed a loop. So we said, why not connect all this into a about a 250, 260-mile loop, and we'll call it the Grand History Trail because it goes through such interesting places, Gettysburg, Frederick, Washington, D.C., Alexandria, Annapolis, Baltimore, York, and Gettysburg. So, okay, so you just mentioned some of the areas where trails exist. Yes. Where don't they exist? Well, on this loop, uh, about three-fifths of it is done. About three-quarters of it have been planned, and what we're trying to do is get groups of people in the quarter that hasn't been planned working to uh, get their local people to really want this to happen. Now, when you say working to get those people to make it happen, what does that mean? What does that entail? Well, you have to publicize that this is a good thing. Uh, All trails are about three things, in my opinion. They're about health, wealth, and joy. Uh, The health is pretty uh, self-explanatory. You are more healthy when you're on a trail. You're either walking or biking or or cross-country skiing or whatever you're doing. So health is there. The wealth is that this is an economic driver. I think Cindy will talk more about that shortly. I want to talk about that in a minute, yeah. Uh, And the joy is... It's the friendliest place you can go in your in your local community. It's where more people say hello to each other as they pass. They smile at each other as they pass. So health, wealth, and joy. The second part of the joy is what a legacy to leave your kids if you've com- completed a loop that uh, is going to be there forever. Maybe we can get those Russians and Ukrainians to build a, a, a trail so that they smile at one another and have that joy that you talk about. It, it's a long way from the Ukraine. No <laughs> it is. Secretary Don, you know, just what Don described, and the economic driver is one of the things I wanted right. to kind of zero in on. How are nature trails economic drivers? You know, it's amazing. Um, they are the most demanded recreational asset in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. We just finished a, uh, a state recreation plan, interviewed 10,000 Pennsylvanians, and the thing they want most is trails, and the thing they want their government to invest in is trails. So thankfully, we are able to invest in that through our Community Conservation Grant Program. But the great news about that is it returns so much to the Commonwealth economy. For example, um, the Great Allegheny Passage in the western part of the state connects Pittsburgh all the way down to D.C. And again, emphasizing these big trails are fantastic in terms of being economic drivers. That trail brings $50 million to the economy of southwest Pennsylvania through these little trail towns and through the tourism that that has generated. This big trail has been publicized. The Schuylkill River Rail Trail, it was named the best urban trail in the United States last year. And it's fairly new. It's fairly new. It's still We still have gaps. We have to complete some gaps on that one as well. But it's bringing $7.3 million to the economy in the areas it uh, goes through. And it has, it has really spawned some really neat trailside development and rehabilitation of old neighborhoods, et cetera. And that's another thing. When you go out in the Schuylkill River Rail Trail... What Don described in terms of joy, that's what you see, all kinds of people on the trail. And then the York Heritage Rail Trail, which is one of my favorite trails. That's where I go when I have out-of-town company coming into Pennsylvania. I want to show them something neat. That The study on the economic benefit of that 
uh, trail is actually uh, a little bit dated, but it it brings in 4.4 million to the economy. And if you go to the little trailheads of the York Heritage Rail Trail, you see plates from you know from Maryland, Virginia, D.C., all around the place. So you see all kinds of people. You see. You know, you see Amish people, you see kids biking, you see people on horses, you see all all kinds of ethnic mix. It's a place where people truly, uh, and everyone says hello as they go by. It is exactly what uh, Don described. And for that reason, uh, York Heritage Rail Trail was named our Trail of the Year in 2015. And everybody thought that DCNR named it that because Governor Tom Wolf actually walks on that trail. But in fact, that was um, that was voting by our statewide Trails Advisory Committee because the York Heritage Rail Trail was one of the pioneer trails. And it it's, it's really forms a backbone for the big loop that Don's talking about. And you know, we know that they can pull it off because look what's happened in the York Heritage yeah. Rail Trail. Don, how old is York Heritage Rail Trail? Uh, I think it's been 15 years. I'd say it's a, yeah, it yeah. may have started. I, maybe 20 years. Yeah, I'm I just not say, sure. Because I remember for, yeah, for a long time. long time. Now, the word rail isn't there. Do many of these trails follow old railroad lines? Many of these do. Uh, no, we have a trail network across Pennsylvania. Some of them are more wilderness trails, but the, the rail trails follow old abandoned rail corridors and are brought back into service as a trail. And some of them have, uh, the York Heritage Rail Trail has a small tourist rail line running part of it you know, side by side with the trail. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that is because that's already been dug out. It's already been cleared. So it's fairly simple, I would imagine, to make that into a non-motorized trail. Want to get back to a question, though, about economics, uh, Secretary. You talked about the millions of dollars that these trails in Pennsylvania are bringing in. How do you know that? How do you measure that? Well, they, uh, they do a study. It starts with the, uh, in, the input end of it has to be the number of visitors. So the uh, trail group has to be willing to do a head count uh, and understand how many people are visiting. And then interviewing a certain portion of the visitors. How much do you spend in a day? Do you, do you stay overnight? Uh, and then they do a, the multiplier uh, into the community of the, where the, what they're spending money on, the food, the overnight, the gasoline. Uh, and then you can some some studies add in equipment mo- you know multipliers and some don't. Mm-hmm. We did a state park study on the economic value of state parks, and we did not choose to add in um, the cost of the campers and RVs and things like that. We kept that out of the equation. So there's there's differences in these studies that you have to look at, but they generate tremendous uh, tourism and economy. Don, this is the Grand History Trail. And uh, you, as you mentioned, uh, the reason it's it's gotten that name is because it's so close to too much, so much American history. But how close? If someone is walking the trail, say in Annapolis, how close are they to the Naval Academy, to the uh, you know the waterways in in Annapolis? Yeah, they're a block away. Okay. Uh, the working with us is the National Rails and Trails Conservancy, and they think this is a a prime project that they'd like to see completed. And also the National Park Service thinks this is a very good idea. The National Parks Service did a study with us of the number of uh, historic sites around this loop, the entire loop, and it numbered over a thousand. Really? Yeah. So, and that's within a half a mile of the trail. Uh, wow. 
So, you know, this is, Grand History is a pretty good name for this trail. Well, I mean, just think about it. Uh, you could cover at least 150, 200 years with what you're talking about. I mean, just the the walk from Gettysburg to, I say walk, could be a bike ride. Uh, I hope. <laughs> to, to Gettysburg, to Frederick, Maryland, yeah. to Harper's Ferry in particular, because those two places, Gettysburg and Harper's Ferry, so connected. But, you know, one of the things I'm curious about, curious about is some of the urban areas, Baltimore, for example, Washington, D.C., uh, I assume the trails don't go right through the heart of the city. Quite frankly, the Baltimore is done. Uh, the trail is, uh, if it's not done, it's uh, the money's been budgeted and it's been planned and it will happen. Uh, north of, from Baltimore, north to Baltimore City, that portion is absolutely done. The trail in Washington, D.C. goes right into Georgetown. It connects over to the Mount Vernon Trail uh, that goes through Alexandria and then across the 495 Bridge. All that is done. The city's pretty much of the towns have uh, done a pretty good job of completing this, this loop, particularly Gettysburg. Gettysburg has a group of people working down there that uh, they're called, it's, it's, it's a not-for-profit called Happy. And they've worked so hard with us to make this loop happen. They're working to uh, get the loop completed between Gettysburg and Hanover. And they put a group of people together to plan the route between uh, Gettysburg and Emmicksburg. So that's a cross-state group. Uh, all along the trail, there are citizens' groups now in the entire loop that are working with local politicians to try to make this happen. So that's no matter where you are. There's a group of people working to fill in the gaps on you know, the entire loop. You know, I, I, just, I had to correct myself because rethinking this, when I said about it, may be more of a challenge with urban areas, but there are so many city governments, uh, so many groups that are trying to make their cities, their urban areas more walkable that I can see how that... that Frederick's a perfect example. That Frederick has their uh, bike trails through the city. We still have to connect from Frederick down to the C&O Canal and from Frederick to Emmicksburg. But boy, we got a group of people working there that are going to make that happen without question. They're, they're just a super group, very excited about this. Uh, we had a group of bikers ride this last fall, uh, about six, I think there were six, seven of them, and they rode around the entire loop. We talked to 23 politicians as we went around the loop and uh, community organizers as we went around the, uh, the loop. And the response was overwhelmingly positive. We talked to uh, the Maryland state legislator, the the uh, uh, chair of the Senate uh, stopped and talked to us. Bike groups along the way stopped and talked to us. And, and there's a lot of excitement generated in Anne Arundel County, Prince George's County, and Frederick County in the Maryland section of this trail. Did you get any of those politicians on bikes and have them ride? Some did. Okay, good. That's what I wanted to hear, you know? Yeah, some did. <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. We're talking about the Grand History Trail. And uh, it's, as you probably heard if you were listening, it's uh, about 60, uh, 60% uh, complete, meaning... Uh, existing trails, but there's another 40% that have to be acquired and completed. Joining us is Don Gogniat, an educator, author, and traveler is one of the biggest advocates for the Grand History Trail, and Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, Cindy Dunn. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Let's take a phone call from Jim in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. 
Hi, Scott, and hi, Cindy, and hi, Dawn. Um, uh, I am uh, with an organization called Keystone Trails Association. We are the statewide advocate for hiking and trails all over the state, and I, I think this is just a wonderful effort, uh, and I, I, uh, I'm hoping the Keystone Trails Association can be involved with this group and uh, you know, help to, to push it and, uh, and see that it's completed. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is... Uh, uh, we, I, I've, I've hiked all over the country and all over the world, and I think Pennsylvania may have the best network of, of trails. In particular, I encourage parents of children, if you want to get your kids away from uh, the video games and all that kind of stuff, take them out for a hike. There's all over the state of Pennsylvania, there are, there are just great hiking trails, some of them easy, that, that they'd be a, sort of a good thing to start, start kids out on in then they can they can move up to more difficult trails. But uh, Pennsylvania is uh, a wonderful state for uh, for hiking and biking on trails. I encourage folks to get out and, and try some of them out. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I, I just want to mention that you're absolutely right. Uh, every hospital along this entire trail, Johns Hopkins, Wellspan, uh, Hanover Hospital, Frederick Hospital, has endorsed this trail because they know it's really good for their uh, local citizens and residents. Every single hospital has endorsed this. Secretary? I'd like to uh, build on what Jim said. Jim, good to hear your voice. And I would it really echo what he said. It's funny, the last couple weekends we've had a few nice days, and in both days I managed to get out and hike. And last Sunday, this past Sunday I was out on Appalachian Trail, in fact, in your section, Jim, and there was a lot of people out. It was just great to see people with their kids. Weekend before, we had a nice day. It was at a Dauphin County uh, facility, uh, Wildwood. It has a three-mile loop. Mm-hmm. It was mobbed with people. And the joy factor that uh, Don brought up is, was really in, inevident. But I think people really get the importance of uh, hiking and, and trails. And KTA is absolutely a, a key partner because the state rec plan set a really lofty goal of getting a trail within 15 minutes of every Pennsylvanian. It's kind of building from the Goddard goal of getting a state park within 25 Reese miles Goddard, of every, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. So now we're looking at, well, what's the modern equivalent? Well, a trail within, you know, close to home within 15 minutes of every Pennsylvanian. So that's going to take a, a lot of dons and a lot of gyms and a lot of uh, volunteer trail groups. And these civic leaders are a key early ingredient for any trail. Support of local government uh, is a, another key ingredient because as a state, we really can't respond without that kind of local support. And then a well-funded state trails program is another key ingredient. And I think with all that, we can really uh, meet this goal and and bring trails close to Pennsylvanians because of all the benefits that were mentioned. Hey, Jim, thank you very much for your call. And we do have a, 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 we had a a listener who called in and didn't want to be on the air, but had a big question and wanted to know, um, you know, first of all said hats off to the group for making this happen. Uh, or excuse me, this is, uh, okay, I want to make sure I don't get mixed up here because we have a number of calls. Is this going through private land or public roads? What kind of land acquisition is going on here? Do they use eminent domain? Uh, it depends on where you are. Uh, eminent domain has been used, I think, once um, in York County. Um, the rail trail between um Harris, excuse me, between Hanover and York is going to be on an old um, 
uh, old railroad trolley line, which is now owned by an electric company. So that's not eminent domain. That right away is right there. Uh, in general, most rails-to-trail authorities or rails-to-trail organizations try not to use eminent domain. That's the bottom line. But Second, one of the things that's interesting about these trails from the joy factor and and even from an eminent domain factor is the egalitarian nature of a trail. You're going to see young people. You're going to see old people. You're going to see inner city people. You're going to see white people. You're going to see black people. Everybody uses the trail. So it is a it is a citizen's trail no matter what, no matter where you go. Secretary Dem, where's the money come from? Yeah, I'll tell you about this on the eminent domain issue. The Commonwealth is, is not involved in eminent domain for uh, land acquisition. It's always willing, willing seller, willing buyer. But we do have a grant program, one that is available for land conservation, and that's through the Keystone Fund. It's a land trust portion of that. And then we, we designate about six to eight million annually for trails across the Commonwealth. We have a goal of closing the major trail gaps across the Commonwealth, so we take some of our Keystone Fund and some of our other grant funds and agglomerate them to a you know, fairly large trail grant opportunity. Now, we get way more applications than we are able to make the grants, but you know, we, we encourage people to stay with it. Let's take a call from Mark in Columbia. Mark, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning. I'm the Hats Off guy. I'd just like to say hats off to the group for, uh, gosh, taking the initiative to make a trail like this happen. It sounds very exciting to me. I belong to a group of skydivers that we, uh, a couple times a year, go out and walk a trail. The next hike we have planned is uh, for the Northwest River Trail that's just now completed in Lancaster County. We're going to walk the length of that in the middle of April. But uh, it's just wonderful to see this kind of development, especially using those old railroad beds. Um, I was also on another trail in Akron, Pennsylvania. They're completing... Uh, in the middle of trying to do that from Ephrata to Akron to Lidditz, a nice little trail that has been a dormant piece of railroad bed for, for years. And it's just wonderful to see this kind of development and to see us getting away, you might say, a little bit from the automobile and back towards, uh, you know, bicycles and that sort of thing. I just think it's a wonderful bit of progress that we're making as a society. Hey, Mark, I think I almost out of time. Thank you very much for your call, okay? Uh, we only have about 90 seconds left. Bob, what do you need to make this happen? We need excitement from uh, local residents uh, that talk to their local community leaders that say this makes good sense for us in the long run, that this will be better than the Great Allegheny Passage just in terms of the economic development. So from an economic standpoint, local leaders have to know that this is something that should be done. Uh, to make their citizens more healthy, it's also something that should be done. And they're going to be happy about it because everybody will be smiling. Secretary, what do you think uh, has to happen to make well, it? We need a great enthusiastic uh, local leadership. We need uh, local government to step in. We need our partnership with PennDOT and, and DCNR and DCED uh, state agencies to be funded for this kind of work because we're certainly uh, willing to do it. You know, I'd like to do a live smart talk on a nature trip. Let's do it. That sounds great. I, I, I mentioned that right here without consulting any of my... Uh, <laughs> well, let us volunteer uh, the York County Real Trip. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to one. do that. I mean, every time we you know, we talk about this, I always feel like, oh, I feel like, especially on a day like today where it's nice and sunny outside, getting out and uh, and, and, and taking a, a, a hike today. But uh, I think it'd be great if we could do that in the late spring or early summer, something like that. Let's we can, plan on it. All right. Let's talk about that. All right. Secretary uh, Cindy Dunn, 
Don with the, the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources and Don Gagnat. He's an author, educator, traveler, one of the biggest advocates for the Grand History Trail. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And if you have any other uh, comments you'd like to make, we ha- I know we have a couple suggestions for some places for trails. Uh, send them to uh, smarttalk at witf.org. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, the future of the clean power plan in Pennsylvania.